So there's going to be two texts today. We're going to start off in Matthew 26, 26 to 30. It says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And the next scripture we're going to read is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 34. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ and eat and drink eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should eat all you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. <clears throat> Spirit of truth, grant now that only truth is spoken and only truth is heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, why do this? Given all the massive changes of our time, given all of that cries out for our attention in our time, why do this? Why come to a table, eat little pieces of bread, and drink from little cups of juice or wine? Why have believers done the do this all over the world, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, century after century? In grand cathedrals, in modest sanctuaries, in homes in lush neighborhoods and crowded barrios, in foxholes on war fields. Why do millions of people keep doing this? 
Well, the fundamental reason, of course, is out of obedience. We do this because our Savior, who is our Lord, told us to do it. As we just read, on that Thursday night, as he was moving toward the cross the next afternoon, Jesus gathered his disciples around a table, bigger table than this, for a meal in an upstairs apartment somewhere downtown Jerusalem. Towards the end of the meal, Jesus took a loaf of bread, he blessed it, he broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, do this. Then he took a cup, and having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink of it, all of you, do this. Meaning, the master commands us to keep doing this. Keep taking, keep eating, keep drinking, keep doing this until I come. And so, out of obedience, we do it, even if we do not understand why he commanded us to do it. Now, it turns out, the more that we do this, the more we are empowered to obey everything else he commands us. The more we do this, the more we are empowered to love the Lord our God with all our strength and mind and heart and soul. The more we do this, the more we are empowered to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the more we do this, the more we are empowered to obey the other command that Jesus gave around that table that night, the new commandment, as he puts it, love one another as I have loved you. So, out of obedience to the one who loves us, we do this, even if we do not understand why. Yet our Lord does not give commandments willy-nilly. He always has a reason for every command he speaks, a good reason. Every command has some redemptive purpose. And obedience is easier to render when we understand his purpose. So we ask, why? Why, Lord, do this? We'll keep on doing it because you commanded us to do it. But why do you call us to regularly stop everything else we are doing, take a loaf of bread, bless it, break it, and say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Why do you regularly ask us to stop what we're doing? Take a cup, give thanks, and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Why did Jesus of Nazareth institute this meal we now call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion? Well, the best place to turn in seeking an answer is to the so-called words of institution. They're found in one of the letters the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers living in the first century city of Corinth. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three to 26. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in 53 AD before any of the four Gospels had been written down and were circulating through the churches. He wrote the words before the words we read in Matthew were available to people, which means that we have in this text the earliest record of Jesus' teaching on the meal. Indeed, we have the earliest record of Jesus' teaching on anything. Interesting, is it not? that the earliest record of the master's words are about his supper, about communion. So let me read the text again. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, 
This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The answer to the why question lies in that twice-repeated phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Now, before we try to unpack that phrase, let me comment on the way we do the do this at the way. Each Sunday after the preaching of the word, one of the leaders recites all or part of the words of institutions and then invites us to come forward to receive pieces of bread and cups of juice while the servants repeat Jesus' words for us. We then return to our seats, we eat and drink, and we give our attention to Jesus in the ways that we sense we need to, given where we are with him at that moment. But this is not the only way followers of Jesus have done the do this. In other churches, trays of bread and trays of cups are passed down the pews. Some of you may have been part of those such churches. In yet other churches, people come forward to kneel. And then they are handed the bread and the cup while they are in that posture. Some of you might know that Sharon and I had the privilege of serving in Manila, the Philippines, from 1985 to 1989. I was the senior pastor of Union Church of Manila, which at that time was made up of Filipinos and then people from all over the world. The foreign population of the church at that time was made up of one-third multinational corporation personnel, one-third diplomatic corps personnel, and one-third missionary personnel. They came from over 300 different countries of the world, and they came from over three, not 300, 30 different countries of the world, and they came from over 30 different Christian denominations. All of that to say that as senior pastor, I had to make sure we served the Lord's Supper in all the different ways those traditions represented. We served the elements on trays, which were passed along the pew. The bread trays had both pieces of bread and pieces of cracker. Gluten-free was not an issue at that time. <laughs> the cup trays had to have both wine and grape juice. The inner three circles had the wine. The outer three circles had the juice. I also had to have pastors or elders standing before the congregation ready to serve those who preferred to come forward. One pastor to serve as we serve here, and another pastor to break off a piece of bread, hand it to the worshiper, who then dipped it into a common cup, partaking as they stood, which meant I had to have other cups ready because that cup was getting filled with breadcrumbs. I had to have yet another pastor or elder standing up front to serve those who wanted a wafer placed on their tongues, who then drank from a common cup, which was then wiped after each person took, partook. It was a wonderful sight. The diversity of the worldwide church doing the this in common in the same space. Oh, and, and I had to dress differently for each of the services. The first service, I had to wear a suit and a tie. And the second service, I had to wear a robe and a stole. Isn't this beautiful? <laughs> it was a glorious experience each time we did it. So back to the question, why? Why do this? 
As I said, the answer lies in the twice-repeated phrase, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. And of this phrase, we need to ask two questions. What is the this we are to do? And what does remembrance of me mean? Okay, that's our map. Two questions. What is the this we are to do? And what does in remembrance of me mean? What is the this we are to do? The this involves three different aspects. They are elements, actions, and words. The elements, the bread and the juice or, or, or wine. The actions done relative to the elements. And the words spoken in connection with the elements and the actions. So elements, actions, and words. The Lord's Supper it does not simply consist in eating bread and drinking wine. The Lord's Supper also consists of doing something with the bread and the wine and saying something about the bread and the wine. Take bread, give thanks, break it, say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take a cup, give thanks, and say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink of it in remembrance of me. So elements, actions, and words, all three. That's pretty clear. Now, we need to especially emphasize the connection between the elements and the words. Apart from the words, a loaf of bread and a cup of grape juice do not constitute the Lord's Supper. Let me say that again. Apart from the words, a loaf of bread and a cup of juice do not constitute the Lord's Supper. Apart from the words spoken over the elements, the elements do not accomplish the purpose Jesus intended. The meaning of the sacraments or ordinances, both baptism and communion, is not gained by human insight into obvious analogies. The meaning is gained by divine revelation. Now, this is why in nearly every Christian tradition, the Lord's Supper is celebrated in the context of the reading and exposition of the word. Without the word, and particular, without the words of institution, the bread and cup do not serve Jesus' purpose. Now, this is so important, let me, let me illustrate it in two different ways. First, consider the rainbow, the rainbow in the sky. The church believes that the rainbow in the sky is a sign from God as revealed in the story in Genesis 6 through 9 of Noah and the flood. The rainbow is a sign. A sign of what? A sign of God's unshakable promise, of God's promise to never again destroy the earth by flood. Now, how do we know that? Did Noah and his family stand before the rainbow and deduce some obvious message in it? Are there physical properties to a rainbow that declare God will never again destroy the earth with a flood? No. Physicists can tell us all about rainbows, all about water crystals and light refraction, but they would never deduce that this natural phenomena is a sign from God. Well, then how do we know that God is saying something in the rainbow? Only by the word of revelation spoken by God recorded in Genesis. This is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and every other living creature for all successive generations. I will set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about that when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant 
which is between me and you and every living creature of the flesh, and never again shall water become a flood to destroy the earth. The word of revelation makes this natural phenomena into a sign of something greater than itself. Now, if you and I had gathered here today for the very first time, and had never heard the word about the pieces of bread and this little cup placed on the table, there is no way we would have seen a sign from God. We would have only seen bread and a cup. It's only the word of revelation that makes these common elements into a sign of something greater. This is my body. This is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the second illustration is more to the point. On a small mountainside overlooking the Sea of Galilee, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children with five loaves of bread and two fish, a very impressive deed. The next day, the crowds seek out Jesus. He turns to them and says, John 6, 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. They had seen the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes, but that's all they saw. They did not see the sign in the multiplication, the sign that Jesus himself is the true bread for which or for whom every human being unknowingly hungers. But how could they have seen it? Jesus had not spoken the word of revelation. Only after speaking the word, I am the bread of life, did the loaves and fishes become a sign of something greater than the loaves and fishes. And so, Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper. Only the word spoken by the Lord, this is my body, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, makes these little elements into a sign of something greater than themselves. It is the word spoken by Jesus that helps us see what we otherwise would not see. Do this, he says. Take bread, give thanks, break it, Speak the word of revelation. This is my body given for you. Take a cup. Give thanks. Speak the word of revelation. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the Lord's Supper consists in all three elements. All three elements. All three elements, actions, and words. Now, this is why those who serve the elements to us also speak to us. They do not simply hand the elements to us. Because communion consists in the elements, actions, and the words. Are, are you following me? Okay. If not, I can repeat all that. <laughs> no. okay. Now, here let me say a word about what is spoken over the bread. This is my body given for you. Given for you. The word is not, this is my body broken for you. In no text in the New Testament does Jesus use that verb, broken. It's always either for you or given for you. Now, why? Because his body was not broken. His body was given. It's the writer of the Gospel of John who emphasizes this most clearly. First, by recording the way Jesus speaks of his death. Jesus says in John 10, 15, I lay my life down for the sheep. And then in John 10, 17, I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. No one takes it from me. He gives his body on the cross. But more to the point, John emphasizes this in a second way. 
It was during the Jewish Passover that Jesus was crucified. And the religious leaders did not want the bodies of Jesus and the two criminals left hanging on the cross for Sabbath. So they asked Pilate for the permission to have the legs of the crucified broken. Pilate grants this because this will speed up the process of dying. So the soldiers come to the first criminal and they break his legs. They come to the second criminal and they break his legs. They come to Jesus and realize that he has already died, so they do not break his legs. Then John says, John 19, 36, these things came to pass that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him shall be broken. The scripture that John quotes refers to the Passover lamb, the lamb sacrificed at Passover. So it, and the text is Exodus 12, 46. Not a bone of him shall be broken. The Passover lamb must be unblemished and unbroken. Jesus is that perfect lamb who freely lays down his life for the world. He was not broken by anybody. He gave his life for us. This is my body given for you. So, the first question we ask of the words of institution, as Paul records them, what is the this we do? Elements, actions, words, all three. The second question we ask of the words of institution is, what does in remembrance of me mean? Now, you might be surprised to learn that there's some scholarly debate about the exact meaning. It is clear who is to be remembered. Jesus. At issue is who is being reminded. New Testament scholar Joachim Jeremias, in his book, The Eucharistic Words of Jesus, written in 1955, argued that in remembrance of me means that God may remember me. He claims that in other texts of Scripture, it's almost always God who is called upon to remember. Like in the covenant with Noah, when the bow is seen in the cloud, I will remember my covenant. Jeremias notes that during the Jewish, Jewish Passover, the following prayer is recited. Our God and God of our fathers, may there arise and come and come unto, be seen, accepted, heard, recollected, and remembered, the remembrance of us, the recollection of us, the remembrance of our fathers, the remembrance of Messiah, son of David, your servant, the remembrance of Jerusalem, the holy city, and the remembrance of all thy people, the house of Israel. May their remembrance come before thee for rescue and goodness. That Passover prayer is a petition that God not forget. That God not forget the promises, that God not, especially not forget the promises about Messiah. So taking this as a parallel to Jesus' words during the Passover meal, Jeremias argues that Jesus was commanding us, do this that God might remember. Do this as a remembrance to God on my behalf, that God may have me, his Messiah, in remembrance to bring about my parousia, my appearing with the kingdom. So on this interpretation, the words mean, as often as the death of the Lord is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, and the Maranatha, come Lord, rises upward. God is reminded of the unfulfilled climax of the work of salvation until the goal is reached that Messiah come. So following this line, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus as an enacted prayer, as a dramatized prayer, a prayer that God not forget what Messiah has already done and that God may not forget the work of salvation is not yet brought to climax. Now, you're troubled by that. Although Jeremias might have linguistic justification for the argument, we rightly ask, 
Does God need to be reminded? Does the God who freely gave his son for the life of the world need to be reminded? Does the God who freely chose to incarnate himself in our flesh and blood need to be reminded? Sometimes it feels as though God has forgotten. Right? Right? Sometimes it looks like God has forgotten. Oh Lord, how long? How long will you endure all the lies and injustice and violence and death? But the fact is, the living God does not need to be reminded, bless his name. The God who says to Moses at the burning bush, I have seen my people suffering, I have heard their cry, I feel their suffering, and I come down to deliver, does not need reminding. But we do. Like big time. We desperately need to be reminded. Am I right? I'm not the only person in the room. If there's one disease with which all disciples of Jesus seem to be inflicted, it is spiritual amnesia. We forget the gospel. Not just because we have a lot of other things on our mind. Not just for neurological issues. Not just because we're aging. We suffer from spiritual amnesia. So we need to be reminded again and again, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Jesus knows us. He knows we forget. So he commands, blessed command, do this. Literally, keep doing this in remembrance of me so you do not forget. Jesus gives us this little meal as a concrete way to restore memory which is why the way does the do this every Lord's day. We need to be reminded again. Now, here's the key to what Jesus means by his commandment. This restoration of memory is more than a mere mental exercise. As I already noted, Jesus instituted the supper within the context of the Jewish Passover meal. Around a table, God's people would remember God's gracious rescue of his people from slavery. And they would remember God's gracious provision for his people as they crossed the desert, headed for the promised land. But the elements and actions of that meal do, do more than simply jog the memory of the Passover story. The elements, actions, and words enable the people to, in some concrete way, relive the story. Not just think about it, but relive it. They eat bitter herbs, for example, to help them feel again the story. They relive the suffering of their ancestors, and they relive the miracle of deliverance. And that, I think, is what Jesus means by in remembrance of me. Not only are our minds quickened, but we will in some way relive his story. So that, through the Word and by the Spirit, we enter into the very reality to which the elements, actions, and words are pointing. Now, I experience this relive phenomena every time Sharon and I look at our children's baby books. We relive those days when God, through the workers of adoption agencies, graciously brought them into our lives. We relive all those feelings. I experienced this relive most powerfully when we celebrated our 50th anniversary two years ago. Looking at our engagement and wedding pictures, I relived falling in love with Sharon, and thus I fell more deeply in love with her. I relived the awe I felt about her beauty. I relived the humility I felt again 
that she chose me to be her husband. Me. Of all the men she could have, she chose me. I'm reliving all of that right now as I tell it. <laughs> what? <laughs> <You'll>... <laughs> Guys, that's a clue. <laughs> so what then do we relive in the Lord's Supper? This is where things begin to stir in me. We relive, we re-enter the three tenses of Jesus' person and work. We relive, we re-enter Jesus' past, Jesus' future, and Jesus' present. The elements, actions, and words take us back in time into Jesus' past. When we take the loaf and break it and say the revelatory words, this is my body given for you. When we take the cup and hear again the revelatory words, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, we are taken back to that hill outside the city of Jerusalem to the cross where Jesus died. We hear again the sound of the soldiers' hammers and swords. We cringe as nails are driven through the skin and muscles of Jesus' hands and feet. We hear again the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We hear hymn writers like Isaac Watts sing, see from his head, his hands, his feet, love and sorrow, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? The elements, actions, and words call us to look back in time to see the Holy One, one with us in our brokenness and sin, to see the living one embracing the pain of the world as his own, taking upon himself the judgment the world justly deserves. Now, why is he doing this? Why is he choosing to do what he does in the past? Well, what does the word of Revelation say? For, for you. This is my body for you. Literally, it is. For the sake of you. He's hanging there in excruciating pain for the sake of you, for the sake of me, for the sake of the world. Even more literally, for the sake of you because of you. There are times when I hold the bread and repeat the words that I feel like weeping. For I know it was my sin that brought him to this suffering. It was my sin that made his death necessary. It's because of me that he's dying. And then there are other times when I want to sing for joy, for I know he is doing it because he loves me. You, for you, he says, for you. He loves me so much, he loves you so much, he loves the world so much, he's doing it to spare us the judgment our sin deserves. This is my body given for you. And then in those moments, I feel like singing my favorite hymn, And Can It Be? And Can It Be That I Should Gain? An interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain? For me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? He left his Father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. What else does the word of Revelation say about Jesus' past? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. He's dying to seal a covenant with us. He's shedding blood to seal a new covenant between God and humanity, a new arrangement, a new pact which cannot be broken. And what is it? It's the agreement first spoken by the prophet Jeremiah 
before Jesus dies. Jeremiah 33, 31 to 34. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them. On their heart, I will write it. I will be their God. They will be my people. They shall all know me, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Wow, what an agreement. The new agreement entails God writing his law on our hearts. No longer is the will of God an external code of ethics written on tablets of stone. It's chiseled into our souls. The new agreement entails knowing God. This word for know is the same word used for the knowing between a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage. They will all know me, says the Lord. All, not just the experts, not just the professional holy ones, they're all fulfilling God's great passion that he be known. The new agreement involves, entails the forgiveness of sins. Can it really be? All our sins covered, wiped off the ledger, taken away? Yes, sins forgiven. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And the new agreement entails sins forgotten. Can that really be? God not only forgiving our sins, but forgetting our sins? Yes, as Old Testament, Old Testament scholar uh, John Goldingay puts it, God so forgets forgiven sin that when we come to him confessing sin we have confessed before, God never says, oh, you did that again, did you? Because he forgot it. And the new agreement entails God having God as our God. I will be your God. You will be my people. Your God. I'm going to be your God. It means everything that I am, I'm placing at your disposal. When we hold the cup and see the red juice, we're taken back in time and remember that Jesus shed his blood to seal that new covenant. Element, actions, and words taking us back in time. But they also take us forward in time into Jesus' future. We relive his past and we prelive his future. The bread and the cup remind us that the Jesus who died is the Jesus who is coming again. On that night, when he instituted the supper, he told the first disciples, I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of this vine from now on until, until, until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. That's why Paul adds after the words of institution, until he comes. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In the upper room, he promised to come and bring salvation to its climax. He promised to come again, not as suffering servant, but as the victorious king. The kingdom is already breaking into the world in his first coming, but one day it will be the only kingdom there is, and then shall the hallelujah chorus be fulfilled. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The supper takes us to look forward in time. So it's no coincidence that during communion service, the early church would recite the short prayer, Maranatha. It's Aramaic for, O Lord, come. The broken bread and the poured out juice are Jesus' pledge to come again and make all things new. I'm told that Jews who live outside of Jerusalem end the Passover meal wherever else they're living by saying, next year in Jerusalem. 
Maybe we ought to end every celebration of the supper by saying to one another, next time in the fully consummated kingdom, next time in the new heaven and the new earth, the bread and the cup remind us that decay and disease and injustice and violence and death do not have the last word. The man with nail-print hands has the last word, and that word is life. So there are times when I hold the elements, when it seems that all around me is crying out, all will be well. And new courage rises up within me. I may not know what the future holds, but I do know who holds it. And I know just as surely as I hold the bread and the cup, he holds me. He holds my family. He holds you and your families. He holds the whole human race. Keep doing this until he comes, for he is coming soon and very soon. We're going to see the king. Elements, actions, and words take us back in time, forward in time, and they bring us into the unseen reality of the present. Things are not only as they seem. There's more to the present moment than we can know with our unaided intellect and emotions. The broken bread and poured out cup remind us of that more. The more is Jesus himself. The elements, actions, and words of the supper bring us into the true nature of reality. They remind us that Jesus is here. He's really here. And he's very near. He's not present in the way he was in the days of his flesh. He's not present in the days, in the way he will be in the future. But he is present in all of his holiness and grace and beauty and power, offering us everything he is. Now, how his presence is related to the bread and to the juice is a mystery to me. By mystery, I do not mean weird. By mystery, I do not mean spiritual mumble-jumble. By mystery, I mean no one can capture it. We are, after all, talking about a wonder grander than our finite minds can fully understand. Who of us is going to ever be able to say, I finally have Jesus and all of his ways figured out. Christians of different traditions may articulate this wonder differently, but we all agree that in some ultimately mysterious way, the crucified, risen, coming, reigning Savior is really here. As really here as the bread and the cup we see with our eyes and touch with our hands, as really here as those with whom we eat, calling us to turn around again, to put our weight on him again, calling us to himself, offering us the benefits of his past, foretaste of his future, and the blessing of his presence, offering us himself as the bread of life, as the source of living water, as the light in the darkness. And the more we do this, the more memory gives way to encounter, which is why we call it communion. We realize that the Savior himself is the one who is serving the meal. And the more we do this, more of life comes into perspective. We realize that our stories are being absorbed into his stories. We realize that our past is being redeemed by his past. That our future is secure as his future. And that our present is taken up into his presence. New Testament scholar, Charles Dodd summarizes it so beautifully in his book, Apostolic Preaching. At the end, at the, each celebration, he says, we are there in the night in which he was betrayed. We are there at Golgotha. 
We are there before the empty tomb on Easter day. We are there in the upper room where he appeared on Easter evening. And we are there at the moment of his coming with the angels and the archangels, with all the company of hosts in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Isn't that good? We're there at the first supper. And we're there at the last supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we are here at this supper looking and listening beyond the elements to him who is our life. Ben, you can come forward. In remembrance of me, do this in remembrance of me. These elements cry out, come, taste, and see that the Lord is good. The Lord is very good. Jesus is very good. So will you join me in reading the words of institution again? Please read the words that are in bold print. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, in the same way, should be a new slide, in the same way, yeah. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Holy Spirit, will you now move upon these very ordinary elements and make them all that Jesus meant them to be for us. Amen. Amen.